Good. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, thank y'all for the testimony this morning. That was awesome. Um, I never know what to expect, but God always, uh, always delivers. And, and man, just we're going to continue on in the same theme <laughs> that God's had us in this morning. It's such cool testimony to see how he's putting all this together. Last week, we started um, a new mini-series. Uh, I shared with you guys that we're going to work through our distinctives as a TB, TGP church. And I, like I said last week, um, we go through these in new member training, but for a lot of us, it's been a long time since new member training. And so I felt like at the end of finishing up that study in James, we spent six months talking about true faith, that God wanted us to kind of recenter, remember um, why we are who we are, why we do the things that we do, and, and, and all of that. So last week we talked about um, our mission. And I need to, to, to say that I made two blunders last week, and I know y'all are not surprised that I made a mistake. But the first one was that somehow, I don't know how, the title screen up here read motivation like it does, and it was supposed to say mission. Uh, I didn't even know it. Y'all, some of y'all told me afterwards. Um, so sorry if that confused anybody. And then also when I was talking about Adam and Eve's fall, I said that the eight fruit from the tree of life, which was not correct. They eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So I appreciate Carrie's life group for calling me out on that. Um, I love that you guys do that. I remember I was thinking about this just a minute ago when I was thinking about me saying all this. I remember hearing Glenn making those kinds of blunders and thinking, God, what's wrong with him? He's got one job, you know, and, and here I am. So a little humility this morning. Um, so last week we talked about our mission and our, our mission is to lead people to know God. First, we lead them to know God by experience through salvation. And then secondly, we lead them to know God by experience through abiding. And so today we're going to talk about why we lead people to know God. Why is that our mission? We're going to talk about our motivation. What is it that motivates us to do that kind of thing? I don't know if you think about this very often. I've mentioned it a few times before, but our motivation it matters why we do the things we do before. And I, I don't know if you thought about it in this way, but before we do anything, first we have to have motivation. Have you ever thought about that need for motivation before? We think about it sometimes in science class, but I don't know that we've ever made the connection and God made the connection for me today. All of you have heard of Newton's first law of motion, right? And it's going to be up on the screen. An object at rest remains at rest. And an object in motion remains in motion at constant speed and in a straight line unless acted on by an unbalanced force, okay? In order for anything that is at rest to move, it must be acted upon before it will move. Think of it like this. I don't know about y'all, but when I finally get to the bed in the evenings, once I sit down and I pull those covers up, something major has to happen in order to get me back out of that bed, like I jokingly say, somebody better have died if I have to get out of the bed, right? And, and, but sometimes, in, in the course of getting ready for bed, most evenings I'm in the bed before my wife is because I do a lot less stuff than as most guys you, you know, do. And, and so if I'm in the bed already and then Bethany goes, hey, the clothes in the, need to get swapped from the wash to the dryer, I have a choice to make, right? I can either go, fine, and I get up. Now the clothes are going to get swapped. But my experience is not going to be great. Amen? Okay. We need motivation and why we are motivated matters. Following that same illustration of the law of motion, if an object is in motion headed in a particular direction, it will not change unless acted upon. For example, 
We were all born in sin, right? I was born in sin. I'm headed towards death and eternal separation from God until I have been acted upon by the Holy Spirit. We talked about that last week, about the Holy Spirit drawing us in. We're going to talk about that again today. I was headed in one direction in my life until God reached out to me, drew me to himself, and it changed the course of my life. I've shared this with you before. My goal in life from the time I was a little kid until my sophomore, the year between my sophomore and junior year, my whole goal in life was to be an astronaut. That's all I could think about. And the year between my, my sophomore and junior year, God called me to ministry, and it completely changed the trajectory of my life in every way because I was acted upon by an outside force. When we're headed in that particular direction, only a change in our minds or in our hearts can move us or deviate us from the path that we are already on. So what is it that motivates me, that motivates so many others to allow God to change their life? The obvious answer is it's His grace. And that's what we're going to talk about today is God's grace. So what is grace? Grace in theology is described in two different ways. There are um, two kinds, special and common grace. Special grace is the unmerited and irresistible favor of God by which he redeems and renews saving sinners and restoring creation through the work of Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit. We talked a lot about special grace. We never, I never called it that, but when we were talking through the book of Hebrews that that's our story, this is what we're talking about. God's work across history to redeem, to restore us to himself is special grace. And then there's also common grace, and it's God's general favor by which he restrains sin and its consequences, maintains human life and culture, and bestows a variety of gifts and blessings to all people indiscriminately. To put this in simple terms, common grace is the fact that God keeps us alive, right? That's, had God's common grace not existed on the world, we would have all killed one another a long time ago, okay? So there's two kinds of grace. But to receive grace from God at all, is to receive his unmerited favor. And I want to talk about that word unmerited for just a minute. I want to draw special attention to it. Because we do not deserve God's grace. And there's nothing that we can do to earn God's grace. God gives it to us because he loves us. Because he desires to see us renewed and restored. Paul talks about this in nearly all of his writings. But in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8-9, through 9, he says, For you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is God's gift, not from works so that no one can boast. Paul is making the point that if we receive grace, which is a gift, through faith, not by acting or doing something, right? Raise your hand if you've ever worked for a gift. No one, right? Because if, if you had to work for it, it was no longer a gift, right? It was payment, amen? We're going to loop back to this in a minute, that whole idea. But look what Paul goes on to say about grace in the book of Romans. In verse uh, 20 through 26 of chapter 3, he says, For no one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law, because knowledge of sin comes through the law. And I want to pause for a second. I want to explain that verse. Paul is saying that we are not justified by our works, by keeping the law. All that the law does is point out that we need grace. It points out that we are sinners. It shows us that we are not like God. He goes on to say in verse 21, But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed and attested by the law and the prophets. So Paul is saying that the law does not prove God's righteousness. God is already righteous. 
The law's purpose is only to show us that we are not. He goes on to say in verse 22, The righteousness of God is through the faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, since there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God presented Himself as the mercy seat by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness because in His restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. God presented Him to demonstrate His righteousness at the present time so that He would be just and justify the one who has faith in Jesus. I want to draw out two particular things that Paul is saying that are going to be necessary for us to understand grace. And the first is that Paul says that God presented Jesus as the mercy seat by His blood. I want us to remember, or to know if you don't know, what it means, what this means because it's significant. The mercy seat, look at this, this quote, it says it refers specifically to the mercy seat. The covering of the ark where the blood was sprinkled in the Old Testament ritual on the day of atonement. This term is used only one other time in the New Testament, in Hebrews chapter 9 verse 5, where it's rendered as mercy seat. There it describes the altar in the most holy place, the holy of holies. Thus Paul is saying that God displayed Jesus as the mercy seat, the place where propitiation was accomplished. And propitiation just simply means uh, turning away of anger by the offering of a gift, right? To get that in your brain, think about buying roses for your wife to say, I'm sorry. That's propitiation, okay? That's what it is. In the temple, the blood of the sacrificed animals was sprinkled on the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies on Yom Kippur. And Paul is saying that Christ's blood has now been sprinkled on the mercy seat for the forgiveness of the sins of everyone. So there's a different kind of sacrifice that just happened. He also throws the phrase, God passed over the sins previously committed. And he's specifically bringing to mind the Passover that happened in Egypt as God is delivering his people from slavery in Egypt. You remember the story, Pharaoh wouldn't let the people go. And so God told Moses to put the blood of a lamb over the doorpost. And that night, the Spirit of the Lord passed over, and every door that was not covered, the firstborn child died, right? And so Paul is bringing that imagery back for the church, and he's saying, God did all of this so that your sin would be covered. The second thing I want to point out is that we are justified by His grace and made righteous before God. Another one of my commentaries said, in English translations, it's difficult to see that justify and righteousness share the same Greek root. In Paul's day, this terminology would have been common in a court of law where it was used by the judge to declare an accused person not guilty. Paul uses justification language in a similar way to explain how, through faith, the work of Christ makes it possible for sinners to be found righteous by God. This explains why justification and faith are mentioned together so often in verses 20 and 28. Paul explains that being justified through faith is the opposite, hear me on this, Justification by faith is the opposite of being justified by works. Justified by faith is the opposite of being justified by works. Church, this is one of the most commonly misunderstood aspects of Christianity. For most people in the United States, I'll speak to that, still believe that in order to get to heaven, they have to do and say the right things. They have to be pleasing. They have to make themselves pleasing before God. And while that's one of the most misunderstood passages, it's one of the most foundational parts of our faith. No other religion has this. 
In any other world religion you go to, the person must do things in order to earn whatever it is that they're trying to earn. It's only in Christianity. Only God did for us what we could not do for ourselves. And I want to say this as clearly as possible so that there's no room for anyone to get it wrong. You cannot impress God and you cannot improve his view of you in any way. There is nothing that you can do that will change the way God sees you. There's nothing that you can do to change the way God sees you. We are separated from God by our sins and even our best attempts fall disastrously short of accomplishing the goal that we intend. We do not deserve God's grace. And to think that we could ever earn it is an insult to the sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf. Because here's what we are doing. Church, listen to me. When we are trying to improve our position with God by our works, we are saying that this thing that I am doing is greater than Jesus dying on the cross. Do you see how preposterous that is? To say that me doing everything I can to not say a bad word is better than Jesus dying on the cross. It's an insult to what he's done. And it won't work. He paid the price that we deserved in order that we might be made righteous once again. Christ's death, burial, and resurrection has renewed our relationship with God. Our pathetic attempts at righteousness will never come close to comparing to his perfection. So this is grace. God has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. So that he could, could, could renew, could restore what we destroyed. God did this for us. So this is our motivation. When we talk about our mission, when we talk about the why and the how that we do ministry, it has to start here. It has to start from a place of gratitude and love going, I don't deserve the fact that God speaks into our lives the way we have all testified today that he does. We do not deserve that. But God, because he loved us, has made it possible for us to, to, re, to be renewed in that way. So the first way that we experience grace is through salvation. That's where it begins. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, Paul says, He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Paul is saying that, that God took Christ who had no sin and made him to be like sin so that we could have his righteousness. God made a swap. He took Jesus' perfection and our unperfection and he swapped them for our sake. God has done all of the work. And as we talked about last week, God even does the work of drawing us to himself. He sent his son Jesus, which we will be celebrating in just a few weeks as we, as we talk about Christmas, so that our relationship could be restored. You remember Russ a few years ago teaching on Israel's search for the one who could crush the serpent's head. He talked about that. We were studying Exodus and he started in Genesis first and I made fun of him because we were like, no, dude, we're not doing Genesis. We're doing Exodus. Y'all remember that? He started in Genesis because that's the beginning. When Adam and Eve are led astray by the serpent, the rest of Israel's history is this search for the one who could finally crush the serpent's head. Church, that's Jesus. That's what we celebrate. Jesus is the one. He came and he conquered sin and death for us. So the obvious question is, how do we experience salvation? 
Do I simply believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that He came to die on the cross for my sins? Paul would say no, and I want to make sure we are all on the same page on this. There's more to it than that. Look at Romans chapter 10, verse 8 through 10. Paul says, on the contrary, what does it say? The message is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. This is the message of faith that we proclaim. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One believes with the heart, resulting in righteousness, and one confesses with the mouth, resulting in salvation. We covered this not too long ago in our study in James, James chapter 2, verse 19. James says, you believe that God is one. Good. Even the demons believe that, and they shudder. James and Paul would both agree that to believe that Jesus is the Son of God is only part of it. We must also confess with our mouths. We've talked about this before, but there is something that happens physically in your brain when you speak a belief out. It goes from being theory to being concrete in our minds. So the act of actually confessing it out loud does something in us. It's not enough to simply believe, but we must say it out loud. And when we do that, Paul goes on to say in Romans chapter 10, verse 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Yesterday morning, as I'm thinking through this message, one of my devotions said this. This was out of Oswald Chambers. He says, the great miracle of the grace of God is that he forgives sin. And it is the death of Jesus Christ alone that enables the divine nature to forgive and to remain true to, to itself in doing so. It is shallow nonsense to say that God forgives us because, he, because of his love. Once we have been convicted of sin, we will never say this again. The love of God means Calvary and nothing less. The love of God is spelled out on the cross and nowhere else. The only basis for which God can forgive me is the cross of Christ. It is there that his conscience is satisfied. Forgiveness doesn't merely mean that I am saved from hell and have been made ready for heaven. No one would accept forgiveness on that level. Forgiveness means that I am forgiven into a newly created relationship which identifies me with God in Christ. The miracle of redemption is that God turns me, the unholy one, into the standard of himself, the holy one. He does this by putting into me a new nature, the nature of Jesus Christ. Because of Jesus and the salvation that he offers, we get to become someone new. And so now that we've become new creations, we experience the grace of God after salvation. The grace of God gets us to salvation, but it doesn't end there. God is not done with us. Salvation is only the beginning. It's like dipping your toe in the swimming pool and then finding out that the water's perfect. You dive in because you can't wait. Now that we've experienced that taste, we want to dive in. Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, for freedom Christ set us free. Well, that sounds familiar. Stand firm and don't submit again to the yoke of slavery. Take note. I, Paul, am telling you that if you get yourself circumcised, Christ will not benefit you at all. Again, I testify to every man who gets himself circumcised that he is obligated to do the entire law. You who are trying to be justified by the law are alienated from Christ. You have fallen from grace. For we eagerly await through the Spirit, by faith, the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision accomplishes anything. 
What matters is faith working through love. Paul is addressing this idea that after salvation, there's additional work that we must do in order to please God. And he states very clearly that if we try that in our own power to keep even one law, we are then required to keep all the laws perfectly. And as far as I know, there's only one guy that's ever done that, and his name was Jesus. Remember that Jesus lived and died and rose again because we cannot be holy without him. There, were, there are thousands of years of history proving that without God's grace, humanity is doomed. I've been listening to this podcast called The 10-Minute Bible Hour. The author is uh, Matt Whitman, and he's been working through the book of Matthew for like, I don't know, since like 2019, okay? Um, and, it's, and it's really good, and it's just little chunks at a time. But he makes a point that all of Israel's history is a record of God's people failing, right? I, I know that you guys are familiar with the, the, the tune, I guess you'd say, bump, bada, bump, 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 bump. Okay, everybody's, okay, so he uses that to illustrate this point. Israel's history is a whole lot of bump, bada, bump, bump, and nothing, okay? And that drives people insane, right, when you don't do the bump, bump on the end. God saved Israel from slavery in Egypt, and they're like, wow, look what God did. He killed all of Pharaoh's army. Let us sing his praises. And then the next paragraph, they're complaining about not having enough food and water and asking to go back to slavery in Egypt. They're saying we would have been better off there. Bump, bada, bump, bump. God's presence is on the mountain and Moses is going to, to get direction. Yes. Wait, he's been up there a lot longer than we expected. Let's hurry up and make a calf so we'll have something to worship. Bump, bada, bump, bump. Oh, the promised land. We can leave the desert finally. Wait, those guys in the promised land are big. Let's go back to the desert and wander around for 40 years. Bump, bada, bump, bump. This happens over and over and over again. Humanity has proven that it's imperfect and it's unholy. And Jesus is the bump, bump that's been missing the whole time. Jesus is crucified and so many thoughts are going on in the heads of the disciples and his followers. But three days later, bump, bada, bump, bump. Bump, bump. Jesus was finally the one that could come and kill the serpent and kill sin and kill death. The problem, church, is that so many have accepted this salvation, but then they try to take back control of their lives and live according to their own means, according to their own power. And once again, we've returned ourselves to the bump, but a bump, bump. And we left out the best part. The whole point of Jesus living and dying and coming back to life is that God is restoring us. And when we do church with any motivation other than love and gratitude in response to his grace, we are missing the whole point. This is why this is one of our distinctives. Because if we move away from operating out of motivation that comes from grace, we are operating in our own power. We are saying, I think that I can do this better than God can. And we may not... We may not voice it that way, but that's what we are implying. I've shared with you guys before so many times earlier in my history that I would plan an entire event for youth groups and then right before I would say, God, please be in this thing that I am doing. And that's backwards. Paul says in Galatians in, in, that we just read, verse 1, chapter 5, he says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and don't submit again to the yoke of slavery. The world, other Christians will try to convince us that just salvation is not enough, that we got to be good people on top of that. 
God has made you righteous by His grace. And not only did He make you righteous, He's going to keep you righteous. Look what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians. He says, Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will do it. God will keep us righteous, not our best efforts. God calls us, God saves us, God keeps us. There is no part in that process that we are responsible for. Watchman Nee says, that which violates the law is flesh, and that which attempts to keep the law is also flesh. Our attempts at being good are, are, or acceptable are sins, church. They're just like our rebellion. Our attempts to keep the law are on equal footing as our rebellion against the law. In his book, Grace Walk, Stephen McVeigh says, your flesh life may not, may not be defiant toward God. Walking after the flesh is simply relying on your own ability instead of God's resources. Don't think of the flesh as something that you naturally find repulsive. It may be very attractive and even look spiritual. That's the trap that the church has fallen into. Is we want to look, we want to act, we want to be a certain thing. And so we act a certain way. But that action is moving us away from God, not closer to Him. And it's moving other people further away from God and not closer to Him. We must fully rely on God for our, own, for our righteousness. Our works do nothing but separate us from Him. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4, I give thanks to my God always for you because the grace of God that was given to you in Christ, who will sustain you in the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. God will not only make us blameless by His grace, but He will keep us blameless by His grace. We kicked off this morning by talking about Newton's law of motion. Church, all of us were headed in one direction, but God has done the work to redirect us. He is our motivation. I want to close today with two things. If you've been living your life in your own power, trying to please God, just stop. Stop doing it. Accept His grace and His forgiveness. God loves you just the way you are, and He proved it on the cross. And there's nothing that you can do that will be better than that. Second thing, if you're here today and you believe that Jesus is the Son of God who died for your sins, but you've never confessed that with your mouth, today is the day. We've been talking about for the last two, two Sundays that God draws us in. And today, if you feel the Holy Spirit tugging on your heart, today's the day. Jesus loves you and he wants you to know him. He wants you to accept the gift of grace. It doesn't matter if you're 10 or 15 or 50. Salvation is here for all of us. Jesus loves you and he wants you to know him. God loves you and he's calling you to himself. And that's what you're feeling on the inside. This morning, God's given us an opportunity to know him better than we did when, he, when we arrived. If you're here today and you're ready to stop trying to please God with your actions or to confess that he is the Lord, when we sing this last song, I'm going to come stand over here by myself. And if you feel God speaking to you about either one of those things, I want to encourage you to come down and talk with me. Let's talk and let's pray together. And let's deal with what God's speaking to you today while we're here. Okay? If you find yourself in either of those two categories, come see me. Let's pray.
God, I lift up every person in this room right now. Lord, I ask that if there's something that's wrestling around in our heart, I ask that you would speak clearly to each of us. Father, I pray that you would prepare our hearts and our minds to, to take in the goodness of who you are. Father, as we continue in worship this morning, Lord, I ask that your spirit would be thick in this room, that we would feel your presence. And God, those that you're calling to yourself, I ask that you would give them courage and boldness to take a step forward this morning. Jesus, we ask all of this in your precious and holy name. Amen.